0: The key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
4: Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple.
2: They had no idea. But now the data's... Pe- I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Nature.
1: Hello and welcome to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be
2: hearing about graphene's latest superpower... And we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of a science fiction classic. This is The Nature Podcast for the 8th of March 2018. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Noah Baker.
1: Over the past decade or so, graphene is one of those things which we just keep hearing about. Physicists already call it a wonder material, and now they think it might have gained another potentially huge superpower. But before we get to that, let's start off with a quick Graphene 101. Ben, what do you know about graphene? It's a two-dimensional material. Correct. Made up of a single sheet of carbon atoms. Next question. How was graphene first isolated? From pencil leads. Right. Again, sort of. It was first isolated from a layered material called graphite, which you're right in saying is what you'd find inside of a pencil. Have a listen to how Pablo Yarillo Herrero from MIT puts it.
4: We have plenty of materials that are layered. They look like a deck of cards, so to speak. And what people did not realise until about 12 years ago is that we could take one card from the deck and investigate its properties.
1: And graphene does have some very interesting properties.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess that as a one-atom thick material, it must be pretty weird. And it also makes for some pretty
1: weird physics, in particular when it comes to its electronic properties. Here's Pablo again.
4: The electronic properties of graphene are very unusual. They are unlike those of any other material. It seems like electrons in graphene behave like ultra-relativistic particles or like particles that go close to the speed of light. Cool, huh? Yeah,
2: but I mean, what is this new superpower you've been talking about?
1: Ah, yes. Well, for that, I'm going to have to hand over to reporter Lizzie Gibney, who's been talking to Pablo about two papers that he and his team have published in Nature this week. Lizzie, take it away.
5: So graphene is already quite remarkable, uh, but you and your team have managed to find another property that it has, which makes it even more exciting. When you
4: stack graphene on top of each other with a very particular ma- uh, angle of rotation, which theorists had uh, called the magic angle, it's about 1.1 degree rotation, it turns out that this graphene system can exhibit superconductivity.
5: Okay, so what is superconductivity and why uh, why are people excited about
4: it? Conventional superconductivity is a phenomenon where electrons are able to conduct through a material without dissipating energy. So you are able to run an electrical current through a superconductor. You dissipate no power. So this is something which is very extraordinary.
5: So you discovered that graphene has this superconducting behavior, but it's not a conventional superconductor. Is that right?
4: Yes. Most superconducting materials happen to be metals, and then you cool them down, you cool them down, and at some point there is a superconducting transition. Most or many of the unconventional superconductors that we have are materials which are insulators at higher temperatures, and then when you add just a very small amount of charge to these insulators, superconducting transitions happen also depending on how much charge you add to it. It changes the temperature at which this material becomes a superconductor and the graphene system that we have created exhibits many of these characteristics that are common in unconventional superconductors.
5: So conventional superconductors tend to be metals and we think we understand how they work. These unconventional superconductors are much more complex. Do we know what's going on inside those? Are we able to explain them?
4: There are different theories, but there's no universal consensus on why these materials behave the way they behave. This is something that has been a long-standing problem for three decades and that uh, people haven't figured out. And what
5: implication does your discovery have then for trying to get to the bottom of this 30-year mystery about uh, about how these unconventional superconductors
4: actually work? This system, graphene, rotated on top of graphene, it's completely different from the chemical point of view from the structural point of view from any of these other unconventional superconductors which in in some sense tells you that some of the details of the chemistry of the structure etc are not essential in capturing the key or the basic physics responsible for superconductivity that might be one option so perhaps uh, there's some sort of higher level elements or common elements or, or common physics at a higher level that is responsible for for all of this
5: and taking a look at the bigger picture then these when we talk about high temperature superconductors they are still um, you know they're still below zero degrees Celsius but the aim of this whole field is is that maybe someday if we understand them enough we can push that temperature higher and higher what what would that mean and if we were able to do that? And, and where might your um, graphene system help us to get there?
4: Increasing the temperature at which superconductivity occurs could have phenomenal technological applications. Just to give one example, about 20 to 30% of the electrical, you know, of, of electricity, of the energy you know, carried you know, by the electrical grid, is dissipated just in the transportation of that electrical current from where it is originated to the ultimate destination. If we could have superconducting transmission lines, wires, that would carry that electricity, there would be zero dissipation. So right away you would gain you know, again, depends. the estimates depend on exactly who you talk to and the country, et cetera. But between 10 and 30% of the energy, you could get it back just by using superconducting transmission lines. What we hope is that our graphene system, which for now has a relatively low uh, critical temperature, what we hope is that it will actually help us understand that mechanism. What are the essential ingredients? How do you put them together in order to get unconventional superconductivity and hopefully this will help us design novel materials or the right conditions for an existing material to be to be changed in order to increase higher and higher the critical temperature. That
1: was Pablo Yarrio Herrero from MIT in the States speaking with Lizzie Gibney. You can read Lizzie's news story about superconducting graphene at nature.com forward slash news where you'll
2: also find links to both of Pablo's papers. Later in the show, we'll be learning what the 2018 Canadian budget means for science. That's coming up in the news chat. First, though, we're joined by Ellie Mackay, the newest member of our team, and she's brought the research highlights along with her.
6: Lactams are common chemical structures found in a whole host of drugs, from antibiotics to anti-tumour compounds. To make them, scientists need to strip hydrogen from a chemical skeleton and replace it with nitrogen. This reaction normally uses a metal catalyst, but there's no effective metal for making lactams because this particular reaction involves an unstable intermediate stage which causes the production chain to collapse. To overcome this hurdle, a team of scientists in Korea have created a custom catalyst made of iridium, one of the densest elements on the planet. By adorning this metal with lactam-loving molecules, it can withstand those destabilizing central reactions. In fact, these efficient embellishments have already been used to create lactams from a range of complex compounds, suggesting the potential for more efficient synthesis of drugs in the future. For more on this speedier drug production, dash on over to science. Have you ever been caught out by a flat phone battery on a cold day? That could be because the lithium-ion batteries that power modern electronics are frustratingly feeble when it comes to frost resistance. But now, researchers in China have developed a new type of battery that retains charge even in temperatures as cold as minus 70 degrees Celsius. The solution? Combining organic polymer electrodes with ethyl acetate, a solvent with an extremely low freezing point, to act as the iron-carrying electrolyte. Ethyl acetate retains enough conductivity at low temperatures that even the most sluggish lithium ions continue to hold charge, as much as 21% at minus 70 degrees, and the new batteries return to full capacity when warmed back up, unlike normal batteries which may never fully recover after freezing. This is a cool improvement on current current supply and holds great potential for providing energy in super-chilled environments such as space. Even better, the organic polymers are a potentially green alternative to conventional materials. The new battery is bulky, so it might not fit in your pocket just yet, but it may not be long until we can all enjoy a frosty reception. If you're feeling energised by that story, head on over to Joule for more.
2: Now then, Noah, before we continue, I would just like to ask you a question. You're watching television. Suddenly, you realise there's a wasp crawling on your arm what do you do? What is this? Nothing to worry about, sir. It's just called a voight Kampf test. I'm trying to judge whether you're an android or not. Well, I'm, I'm not. Of course, you would say that, wouldn't you? Listeners, the Voigt Kampf test, of course, comes from the much beloved science fiction book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Published in 1968 and written by Philip K. Dick, one of the most enduring science fiction writers of the 20th century. 2018 is the book's 50th anniversary. And this week in Nature, Onono Bhattacharya, a science correspondent at The Economist, has written a retrospective of the novel for our books and art section. Now, many people, myself included, are more familiar with the movie Blade Runner, which was based somewhat nominally on the book. I started by asking Onono for a very quick overview of the plot. And listeners, even though this book is half a century old, I will give you fair warning that spoilers will abound.
7: So the overall plot is similar um, in that it's about a bounty hunter, Rick Deckard, um, who is given the job of hunting down um, a bunch of androids. Now, in the film, that's pretty much the plot. In the book, things get kind of weird and complicated.
2: Yeah, I mean, in the first few pages, we're introduced to, what, artificial animals, the shared empathy religion, mercerism, and the Penfield diler mood machine. Discerning the real from the fake, then, I guess, is very much a central theme of this book, whether we're talking about moods or animals or, I guess, the androids themselves.
7: Philip K. Dick is really asking at what point do androids begin to share something of the humanity? Do they, you know, at what point do we start treating them a bit more like humans?
2: Mm, and, And if, you know, something is so convincing as to be real, then do you think it devalues what actually... Is
7: real. I think that is uh, Dick's point, actually, and I don't think the movie makes that so well, and neither does the, the the sequel. Unlike the film, the book is never really in any doubt that the androids, which was sort of shortened to Andes, uh, the word replicants was actually made up for the movie, but Andes are not human, they lack empathy. So Dick's not really in any doubt of that, and he's much more concerned about the effect that robots that look and act quite a lot like us but nonetheless still machines, what sort
2: of effects they have on our psyche. We're perhaps not quite up to the level of realistic androids yet, but are there any studies going on looking at the effects that anthropomorphizing current technologies is having on humans?
7: Yeah, so, I mean, there have been a few. One uh, that recently caught my attention uh, was this great study on digital assistants like Siri. Essentially, they looked at uh, the questions that people tended to ask and they found that for a significant minority... Asking really simple questions to these digital assistants was a problem. And it was a problem because they became embarrassed to look stupid in front of Siri. And it's quite incredible when you think about it because these are really kind of simple pieces of AI. And if we're capable uh, as humans of anthropomorphizing digital assistants, then how are we going to feel about robots or mechanical pets uh, or or anything that are very much more realistic. In essence, I think we risk sort of investing time and emotions into these sorts of machines with the danger that we're neglecting kind of uh, real things and real people.
2: So 50 years on then... Uh, where, where does this book stuck up? Where does Do Androids Dream of uh, Electric Sheep sort of stand in the pantheon of, of science fiction and, and broader fiction?
7: To my mind, the influence of the book is just now becoming apparent. We're beginning to explore the potential of artificial intelligence. I mean, barely a day passes uh, with us not hearing about some new AI problem or solution it looks like robots are getting more sophisticated and, uh, you know, they will begin to enter our lives in a in a bigger way, perhaps. Um, and I think, you know, we will look at this book again in another half century and, and we'll just marvel at how prescient it seems.
2: That was Onono Batacheria there, whose retrospective on Philip K. Dick's novel can be found over at nature.com slash news slash books and arts. And just for the record, listeners, I am not an android. Or am I? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. Definitely not. Finally, then, this week, it's time for the News Chat, and I'm joined on the line from Washington, D.C. by Jane Lee, news editor for the Americas here at Nature. Hi, Jane. Hi. So first up today, then, we've got a story that just missed the cutoff for last week's podcast, but uh, I think it seems like a, some good news for a lot of researchers. Jane, maybe you could tell us a bit about it.
3: Yeah, no. Um, Canada released its 2018 budget on uh, February 27th, and uh, they included a lot more money for uh, scientific research. They're giving them almost uh, $4 billion Canadian dollars. So that's about $3.1 billion in US dollars. Um, and that's in contrast to last year, where... They only got about a billion Canadian dollars of new science funding. Uh, So this is a big, big increase. And so folks are very happy.
2: Oh, my goodness. This is really is like a a significant increase then. I mean, who who are the winners, Jane?
3: The budget is uh, targeted mostly at um, early career and young researchers. And and so folks are very, very happy about that.
2: Well, good news for them, certainly. But I mean, $4 billion is a lot of money. Uh, Do we know how it's going to be split up?
3: A lot of the money seems to be going to basic research. And so they're giving their granting councils hundreds of millions of dollars to distribute how they see fit. So last year, one of the criticisms of the budget was that the money seemed targeted at specific projects and uh, institutions or or organizations. But this year, it seems like the government is giving um, federal agencies more leeway in in determining who gets uh, the extra funding.
2: Mm, And and what what changed the government's mind?
3: So the researchers that we spoke to for this story seem to think that it was this fundamental science review. It was a review that came out last year uh, looking at the state of funding for science in, in Canada and came out with a list of recommendations and this 2018 budget seems to have followed a lot of those recommendations.
2: Well what about the politicians? What are they saying?
3: Uh, so the finance minister, Bill Morneau, in remarks to legislators on February 27th, uh, called the latest budget the single largest investment in investigator-led fundamental research in Canadian history. So they're very excited about it. Um, you know, when Justin Trudeau got elected and, you know, his government changed over, I think people were really hopeful about, you know, what he could do for science. And um, when he released his budget last year, I think folks were fairly disappointed because they were hoping for more. But I think, you know, this year, I think um, they're, they're much more pleased and, and hopeful. And although they didn't get as much money as the, that Fundamental Science Review recommended, um, they think that it's, you know, the budget's generally going in the right direction. And I think people are hoping that they can um, sort of make up for lost time or lost budgets, if you will.
2: All right. And Jane, well, let's, uh, let's change tack a little bit, although we're going to stay in North America. Uh, our next story is about satellites. Uh, what's going on?
3: Yes. So the United States just launched its recent uh, weather satellite called the Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite 17, or GOES-17. Um, and that they did that on March 1st. And um, it's, it's joining a, a twin satellite, GOES-16, which is already in position over the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and and GOES-17 will be parked over the equatorial Pacific. And, you know, with both of those satellites up in the air now, Scientists can look at weather phenomena um, as well as things like, you know, snow cover and, and wildfires from West Africa across the United States and uh, down to New Zealand. So they've got a nice big picture of um, part of the Earth. The problem, though, is that uh, you know, with with this new satellite, it's 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 great. You know, it, it fills in a, a gap um, in in some of the coverage, but. It's also highlighting a challenge that weather forecasters and researchers have been grappling with for a long time, and that's, that's the fact that they actually can't use a lot of the information that these satellites record in their forecast models.
2: So that does seem like a bit of an oversight. Um, If these satellites are collecting all this data, how can it be used?
3: So they are starting to address this. Um, The the main problem was a a technical problem. Um, You know, the way the satellites record this information, they can't easily translate it into data that the uh, forecast models can use. Um, And so they've been chipping away at this for for a while now. Um, There's a European group. Who uh, has been a leader in some of this for you know about 10 years, and um, at research universities here in the United States that are working on this, and they're and they're starting to to fix it. And there's one study that's in review right now at a at a journal showing that you know with this additional data incorporated into forecast models, it definitely improves things like you know tracking the early development of hurricanes or or predicting how strong they'll eventually come. And while the fixes to uh, this problem aren't ready for prime time, um, that, you know, it's, it's not being used in operational models yet, um, st- initial studies with experimental models are, are showing some encouraging results. So, you know, they're hoping in the near future that they can, you know, roll this out to, um, you know, the, the major forecasting centers and, and, and get them into the operational models that can tell people about, you know, weather and, and storms and such.
2: Thanks, Jane. Listeners, you can read all about these stories and more over at nature.com news. And that's it for this week. But before we go,
1: remember our story from last week's show about the researchers who discovered signals from the cosmic dawn? Astronomers have been looking for evidence from this time for probably over a decade or two decades. Well, if you want to learn a little bit more about that, we have just the film for you, in which Lizzie tries to cram in all you need to know about the discovery into just three minutes-ish. Check it out at youtube.com forward slash nature
2: video channel. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening.
0: the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing.